Good morning. Hello, good morning. Lovely to see you, my friend. Good to see you. I hear you all haven't had daylight savings time yet, is that right? Um, that's right, yeah. Because <laughs> we have. Okay. <laughs> I never really understand it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't know. It's just... Um... <laughs> it's abuse is what it is. Abuse. <laughs> uh, hey. So if you look behind me where, um, where usually there's a beautiful... There's, there's sunshine behind me usually, but because of daylight savings time, it's grim and dark and gray and misty. Even God doesn't like it. Um, and it's very hard to get up. And we had to change this time over and over because none of us tracked that it had been daylight, daylight savings time here and there. So trying to find the right window um, didn't work until this morning, I think, <laughs> in the middle of my night. <laughs> you see, I really, I have little understanding of where I am in time and space, let alone helping to coordinate where other people are in time and space. And so I'm very glad to producer Rosie for um, helping to coordinate this so that we're here together now, which is brilliant. I don't know it's when magic. or where we are. It's it is magic, isn't it? Yeah, some sort of weird alchemy um, that, that this is happening at all. So, um, yes, but even though it's grey outside, you are shining, Winnie, as usual. Um, you are... Flattery. Sunshine. I recognize flattery. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> we are to be suspicious of it. My mother told me. Well, I'll tell you what my mother told me. Oh, that's what? gorgeous. That was a nice book you just brought up there. We need to get back to that. My mother told me, people used to say to her, oh, you look so beautiful today. And she used to say, I am but the sun to your moon. If you see beauty, it's only because um, I'm reflecting back the beauty that you already hold. Oh, that's lovely. Wow. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that was, uh, that's what she used to say. But when you just popped up something that our audience, audio ints, won't be able to, to, to get. So you just held just something up, which looks sh- gorgeous. What is it? What the, is it? The way this is timed out is so beautiful. So this is a book called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm, in, I'm in the U.S., I'm in Atlanta. And with Ebenezer Baptist Church, we're doing a book study um, <clears throat> on Heather McGee. Ebenezer is like America's social justice church. It's where Martin Luther King Jr. was. And so it's our church, um, which is overwhelmingly white, um, and their church, which is a historically black Baptist church. We're an Episcopal church. There are 400 people signed up to study this book together, and it's on all of the practical implications of race in this country, uh, in these institutional implications. Yeah, so timely. This conversation is very timely. Azariah, will you tell me about the person we get to meet today? So, I'm so excited. Um, uh, A number of years ago, I was looking after this church and this incredible person turned up and they were doing some training, helping a white audience to understand that they were indeed a white audience. And there was some privilege, some position um, uh, that came with that and and that they needed to deal with that. And uh, we just had this on the doorstep conversation like, who the heck are you? 
I need to, I, I need to listen to you. I even tried to sneak into the back of the session before the powers that be kicked me out because I wanted to, I, I wanted to gather the gems that this person was dropping. And, uh, and this person is Natalia Nana and, I've gone on to get to know her and she has been a go-to person for me to understand whiteness and the way it operates, but also to understand what it means to be a black person. It's, she's helped me to, to think about my place within white institutions and uh, what's possible. Uh, she's always given me a sense of hope. So she is a, if something comes along and I'm thinking, I'm not quite sure how to work this through, how to think this through. Natalia Nana is is kind of top of the um, speed dial list to say, what do you think about this? How do I respond to this? And and so it's just such an absolute honour and ple- pleasure uh, to have her with us today. So, yes, when you meet Natalia Nana. Woo-hoo. Hello, what an honour. Welcome. Hi, I'm I'm sort of choked up from that incredibly moving <laughs> introduction. Well, Azariah has told me more than one story of um, breaking in to see very, very important people. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Here, here. If we're not invited, then we need to sneak in. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Natalia Nana, one of the wonderful things about you is your name. The, the, the name in itself is very musical. And I'm curious as to, um, can you tell me a story about your name or the story of your name? I'm fascinated to know your relationship to your name. Mm, that is a more rich and poignant question than you could, than you could know. Um, my name in so many ways is really symbolic of the journey I have been on, the journey I'm still going on. Um, with regards to accepting, owning, living, breathing, loving my dual ethnicity, heritage and identity. I have six names. I have five forenames. My forename is Nana, Abana, Dufier, Natalia, Kathleen, Lester Bush. And I love the fact that every one of my names has a meaning. Nana is a really, really common um, Ghanaian name, brap, brap. Um, if you if you say that name in, in any room in Ghana, you'll get like 10 heads turn around and look at you. And it's a, it's a unisex name. Um, it crosses genders. And my grandmother, my now late grandma, was a Krobahima, meaning that she was the queen mother of our village. So the name Nana is in honour of her and in honour of the fact that it was meant to, you know, pass down um, to, to me one day. Um, Abana is my day name in Ghana. Everybody in our Akan, in the Ashanti um, people. We have day names, so I'm Abana, the boy equivalent be Kwabana, and you have that for every single day, um, a, a male and female name. So there's a real sense of belonging that that gives me. And I love the fact that, yeah, my, my white English middle-class father um, was so supportive and so embracing of just chucking in all these Ghanaian names. Dufier is one that I really disliked as a kid because it is so un-English, it sounds weird, it sounds odd, like... Doofy, Duffy, it just, I didn't like it. But that actually is my maternal grand, great-grandmother's name. And my great-grandmother raised my mum. My grandma was really young. She was 16 when she had my mummy. So my mum was really raised by a child. And uh, her grandma, Grandma Dufier, 
um, who I never got to meet, but I've seen pictures of her and she had this regal Kroba Himar. She was the first wife and she just looks so regal. She's embodying just what it looks like to be a Nubian queen. So now I'm like, yes, I want to own that name and accept that name and live that name. And I wish, you know, she's an ancestor. I wish I'd, I'd got to meet particularly in hearing and seeing the love and affection that my that my mum speaks about her with. Already tired, okay, I'll hurry up. Natalia is the name that I really use and most use. It's the name that I was called as a kid. So my childhood has like has a part waypoint. I lived in Reading or a village outside of Reading till I was like 10. And that was so interesting because my brother and I were the only brown kids, the only non-white kids in our primary school in the village. Um I remember there was a couple over the road, an Asian couple, and we were friends with them as families. And I remember even at my young age, I knew we're friends with you because you're brown, because you don't have anything in common. Like your work isn't in common. You're not the same age group as my parents. Your kids are like proper grown-ups. They're not playing with an eight-year-old. We're friends with you because we have something in common. And I've always just known and been really, really aware about race and belonging and identity. But I remember the last year of school, of primary school, before we left and moved to London, moved to Harrow, northwest London suburb, where I, where I still am. Another mixed boy joined the school. And I remember saying to my brother at the end of the school day when we met to, you know, go home together. I was like, did you see him? Did you, did you see him? There's another one. Did you see him? <laughs> but Natalia is the name I used as a kid. And the reason I mentioned that juncture is because then when we moved to Harrow, my dad, my white English father, was like, no, you need to really own your Ghanaian self more. And wrote me down in my high school, in my new school, as Nana. So I've got friends who will call me Nana, friends who will call me Natalia, friends will call me Natalia Nana. And you can see by what name they use when they've met me, at what stage of identity, at what stage of my journey I'm in. But Natalia's the name I've always connected with, partly because it's what I was called till I was 10. And also because it's mine, I sort of resented the fact that every name is almost a hand-me-down. I'm like, okay, well, Nana's from my grandma, Dufier's the other grandma, Abner, every other person's... All right, Natalia's mine. My mum loves reading Tolstoy, Russian literature. So got that. Last one, Kathleen is my paternal grandma, my dad's mother's name. I don't know if that was in honour of her, if it was just like, oh, we need to balance out so she doesn't get annoyed. Because um, there's so many other grandmas showing up in this girl's name. And then my surname, Kathleen Lesterbush. And I love that my husband is also Lesterbush. We both took on each other's names. I, so there you go. That was a whole flipping podcast in itself. I bet you yeah. really regret answering that, <laughs> asking that question, don't you? Well, actually, the poor producer sitting there, but he's stressing. Like, we can't have her take this long for each question. <laughs> well, it's a great transition into what is usually Azariah's winning first question about um, how, wh- what you would call home or how you define home for yourself today. Actually, I wonder, before we go into that question, oh. Winnie, yeah. I would love to hear something <laughs> about your relationship with your name. Ooh, yeah. Azariah's gone rogue completely. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, part, uh-huh. part of what I wonder, when I, was, when, I, when I was listening to you, and I wonder, I'm wondering about the pictures behind your head. So if I turned around, I've got a wall of photos as well. And I, what I was noticing about your name is, as you're telling me those stories, you, you are so grounded. I can, it feels to me as you're so grounded in these families. And I feel the same way as someone who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. My family is overwhelmingly in India. And we're from this. We're all from the same place, but we're, they're just far away. 
Um, and our names are the same. They're, um, they're, so we don't get a day name. We don't get a birthday. Um, so my other my question for you is also, what day were you born? Because I, I don't know that name, what day that's attached to. But we get our, uh, we get the, our mother's, we get a name that, that indicates birth order. We get a name that indicates gender. And we get a, a name that indicates your father's family. And you get a name that indicates the household that that man came from. Um, and you get a name to be called at home. Oh my word! Wow. Yeah, and the order—the ordering of all that is—is uh, is, it does it? There are different ways to do it, and then all of us that have left that that place, even if we've gone to other parts of India, the, that all starts to get switched up um, because it doesn't make sense. Because the naming, the w- way people are named all over India is so different. There are parts of India where there's no surname, right? And then someone like someone like me would have—we start. You start with five names. Um, and one is not to be anywhere except to be called as a friendly name, mm. which, yeah, which for me, in my case is Winnie and it's ended up because of how names are written in the, in the U S um, it's a, it's an official name, which would, it, that wouldn't be true if, um, if I were in India. Yeah. That's the same for me with the Nana and Abana, like they're on my British passport. So every time I try and renew that, that's a whole long thing, um, because there aren't enough boxes on the form. But in Ghana, it's you wouldn't put Nana, you wouldn't put Abana. They're just almost social names. So it's been a real journey with home, with identity of being like, oh, my names are too long for Britain and they sound weird and they've got stories. And, you know, the proper white supremacist capitalist way of doing names is really short and punchy and only a maximum of three syllables. And that's really pushing it. And actually now enjoying, I love Azariah's way of wording it. No, my, my name is a song. Azariah, uh, tell us about your name. So my name is a name which I, I I love. It's a name which wasn't a birth name. I went through a period of, um, in my mid-late 20s, uh, I imagine looking back now, it's probably a form of mild depression. And the name Azariah dropped into my heart consciousness. The framework of Christianity I was part of at that time, I would have said, God told me your name is Azariah. And when I looked it up, I learned it means God is my helper and my shelter. And there's 23 at least Azariahs in the Bible. And and but then something I learned only a couple of years ago was the Bible I used to my mum used to tell me stories from. It had the um, the Hebrew boys. And so um, Daniel and um, who is a Bendigo, his name was Azariah. And in the picture book that I have, the picture Bible, Azariah is, is, is a brown guy, whereas the others are white. And so there's this wonderful thing of actually, I'd learned about Azariah um, as a toddler, as, as a child, and I claimed the name as an adult. Azariah, you're so religious. So since we're just got, we're still going to ask you about home, but I, in this conversation about names in, in the U.S., we're celebrating the one year anniversary, we're honoring the one year anniversary of, of the violent murder of um, eight people here in Atlanta. And then kind of attached to that, six of those people were Asian women um, and the ongoing violence specifically against um, Asian women that appear to be East Asian. It's pretty general and how that's that's been happening. Um, all over this country and in the in New York and Atlanta, the two cities I've lived in in the last couple of years. And one of the pieces emerging in that 
is um, how the way that the form allows you to fill out your name in this country has just, just trashed the names of people from Vietnam, uh, the Philippines, uh, Korea, other, you know, other um, places, because the naming, um, the way a person is named is by family, and it's done in, um, often in reverse order. This is your family. This, is, this might be your place. This is what we call you, that kind of thing, um, and all the different ways that that's flipped around. So it's a, it would be okay to stay on this for the entire time. It's, it's so critical. But the, the question we have for you is, if you, is about home um, and where, where, you would, what you, where you would identify as home for you right now mm. and how you would talk about that. Home and identity have been really, really intense, very challenging um, topics for me for my whole life. As I say, I was incredibly aware as, as a kid um, of race, of not fitting in, of not reflecting my peers. I think there's something often quite unique in the, in the mixed race, in the bi-heritage experience of not looking like either of my parents. And it was something I only realised actually as, a, as an adult reading reading a book on on black women's experiences at university and, and some of them reporting on, oh, it's the first time they haven't even in their household looked like people. And I thought, wow, Natalia, and I wonder what that, what that meant for you as a kid, that you never had that. And actually, I should say actually on the name thing, I only recently, in about like the last three years, started calling myself Natalia Nana. And that was really, for me, a reclamation of, okay, I'm trying for my whole life to almost reconcile, to understand and to reconcile. You are English, you're very white middle class. I was raised primarily in my home by my white father and my white English um, middle class Church of England vicar grandfather as my mum, this black Ghanaian um, woman was off slaying at work and really, you know, leading in that. So I'm really, really white, as mates will say to me when I say her. And they're like, what? And I'm really black urban as well. And I'm really connected with Ghana. We had the privilege, and I know it's such a privilege, that privilege both in terms of my dad, my white dad really supporting Ghana, and he's actually probably been there more times than I have. And economically, having the ability to go to, go to Ghana. I wouldn't say go home, now I would, but to say go to Ghana, to go to my mother's home, probably like every two years. So it meant I was connected, but never belonged. I had a wonderful affinity, a wonderful connection to Ghana, I had Ghanaian gums, had Ghanaian clothes, knew the foods, but I don't have the tongue. My mother never taught me the language and that is one of my biggest sadnesses in life because I used to be like, mommy, mommy, speak tree. And she was like, I'm too busy, go speak to your auntie, which I understand now. The, the culture was different. We didn't know as much again about neuro understanding of languages and how you can just speak and the child will learn it. It was a more intentional understanding of it in the 80s. And mum, understandably, did not have the time, did not have the capacity. And who knows what it may have also brought up for her. But I loved waking up on Sunday mornings, hearing her speak tree as she made her international phone calls to grandma and the aunties and so on. But when we went to Ghana, I'd be called Bronnie. Oh, Bronnie is white person. And kids would sing and point and laugh because, of course, they'd never seen someone with white skin. Most people didn't have TVs. They certainly didn't have access to Sky, cable, etc., etc. So that was such a novelty. But then also here, as white as my home life is, ain't no one going to say to me, oh, you're white. 
But also then the black kids are like, oh, you're only playing being black. I'm like, well, my hair disagrees with you. <laughs> the throw on my head and the whiplash I gave myself and the broken hairbrush, both true stories. I thought I'd broken my neck, brushing my hair and screaming for my mother. Because <laughs> um, my hair's so thick. I was like, well, there's parts of my identity, my big lips, which were mocked as a kid, my big hips. They were mocked by white people, by white kids as being, you know, too black, too ape-like, yada, yada. But then I was, you know, not white enough for the white kids. It was just really, really confusing and really difficult. And being in my big white English family here, really noticing, but I've got a dark-skinned, beautiful, melanated mother in those photos. And then there's my brother and I as two Karamar kids in those photos. And then there's 20 white faces. So with this real sense of, connecting but not feeling belonging and then the journey I'm now on coming back to home is it's definitely been a journey since I started doing EDI work equity diversity and inclusion work which in a way I've been doing my whole life in a way I've been doing my whole career from when I graduated in my 20s um, started in cultural harmony work and before that I was volunteering in anti-racism work as a teenager but really intentionally going into it in the last three to four years as Azariah mentioned that's why I was doing that training there that brought up so much unreconciled stuff and led me into therapy with a with a black woman and really just trying to really lean into that and there's been ripples across my whole life about it faith marriage home but what I've come to beautifully now with home and I say come to now because who knows how it will transition is, is I was in Ghana a few years ago and now I have the luxury, the privilege of going pretty much every year. My, my mother and my brother spend a lot of their time there, are based there in some ways and also here. It's that permission of, hold up, you, you, you're really struggling, baby. You're really, really struggling, honey, to, to see which one you are. Baby girl, you're both. You're both. And Natalia Nana, you don't have to choose. I'm going to be greedy. My home is both. Natalia Nana, that's really wonderful. It, um, this time last week, I was with um, family. So a, a half-brother of mine, uh, who was 83, he passed away, and I was at the funeral. And I was able to take part in the funeral... I did the sermon and and then at the graveside, I uh, uh, prayed the prayer um, as, as we committed his body to the ground. And so there's this really interesting thing of I was there as, as a priest and the family. I know when I've had conversations, they say, well, your Christianity is a white man's religion. And and so I, I remember being there in the robes and people looking at me almost the way I sometimes look at black police officers. I'm thinking, you know, there's a it's, this is there's there's complexity here. And I could see the people look at me and there's some complexity. And then when I preached, um, I felt I was bringing a different energy into the room and and people who I'm part of, but also apart from we were coming together and there was a sense of integration and it's so lovely to hear something of of your story and I just wonder um, what have you seen how can churches create a sense of home for people of mixed multiple heritage who have faith 
you know, because I'm curious of how you've learned to see yourself reflected in church or how you've learned to see yourself reflected in God. Because I was seeking last week to help people to see a um, a, a God who included them. And actually, this was um, this was black religion. <laughs> you know, this was this was something else. This is something else. Yeah, Christianity is a brown faith. And it is so sad that because of white supremacy and colonialism and the, you know, the westernization of Christianity, that it just bears so little, little resemblance to the religion, the culture, the preaching of Yeshua of Nazareth and Nazarene. It's it's sad. It's really sad. And it's beautiful, though, when you do have those moments when you can embody, you know, when you can embody the diverse God who is multicolored, more nuances than a rainbow, more sides than the crystal maze thing. That little, that was going so well. And then my analogy just slipped up. So actually, actually, so do you, when you think of God, do you have an image or do you have images? Okay, we're going there. All right. So um, I'm definitely on a really intentional and very, um, yeah, very life, life changing, um, decolonizing journey with my faith. And I used to have an image of God as a white man and that's never been a bad thing. I'm incredibly fortunate because my, and I do give him credit, because my paternal grandfather so embodied God to me, it was never threatening having God be a white man. Because this is a paternal grandfather born in 1909 who was so accepting of his caramel-skinned children and his chocolate-coloured daughter-in-law and so positive in that. And he was so gracious that I was like, oh, okay, so if God is like granddad, then God's really cool. Like, I'm down with God. God is cool. And then for me, thankfully, because I wasn't raised Christian, which is sad, but I'm very grateful for because I see how much trauma and damage it, it seems to do to most people who are, um, is then coming to Christ, coming to, not Christ, I didn't come to Christ, I came to Jesus and reading his preachings, his teachings, his ways. I was like, you know what, this guy... This guy, even if it's all like wrong and and not true and he didn't really resurrect and, you know, I did all that. Like, oh, okay, did he really die on the third day? Well, I've looked at the evidence. I've done my alpha ring. Um, It's factually true. The westernization of my mind of the colonization of, oh, it's true if it's objectively, rationally provable. And now holding that in balance with, but baby girl, Nana, you always knew there was something. You always knew there was something beyond, without, within. You were just connecting with that and now you have a name for it. And I, I don't want to say I fell in love with Jesus of Nazareth because that just makes me want to vom. But I fell into closeness, into admiration, into friendship. You know what? I count Yeshua, I count Jesus as a friend. So what I hear you say is Jesus is not your boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> Um, but I'm I'm curious about this journey. So, what what were your resources? How did how did you find yourself looking? Um, how, what is this? What oh, was that path like? Yeah, it definitely was inci- was incidental. It was not intentional, and and I think maybe that's been helpful because from what I understand from fellow deconstructionists, a lot of people start deconstructing their faith and walking around it because of a crisis or something. You know, some theological um, issue which they can't reconcile, like LGBTQIA two S issues, etc. 
um, or, or grief in something. I think for me, as someone who's a former philosophy and ethics teacher, I've always been interested in those topics. So it didn't come about that way. I've always held so much nuance and difference and enjoy debating different ideas and see it well. If God is Alpha and Omega, then surely they're pretty big and they can handle the nuance and the challenge and the critique. For me, it more so came from this growing dis-ease in white evangelical church where I have been loved and I have loved and I have connected and I have grown my gifts and my talents and my leadership. And I've grown so tired of being the prophet, of being the one speaking about race and, you know, to Azariah's question about, oh, what can churches do to make, to make church comfortable? Churches don't want to make it comfortable. Churches do not want black and brown people to be comfortable. We want, they want us to conform. And that is so sad to say with honesty. I, I hate that I, that I know that to be true. I hate that I know that to be true. I hate that my experience and my research and the experience shared generously of siblings in faith shows that that is the truth, that actually church is mostly white majority leadership, white patriarchal leadership, and it does not want to accommodate the comfort of black and brown people because to actually give us comfort would take so much change, they wouldn't recognize it as their church anymore. And Ezra, I'm going to apologize. I keep asking questions, but I have so, I have so, this is what we're working on. So I'm so intrigued and so beautiful what you said about, you know, when you said, um, I'm okay with white, you know, what white God worked okay because my grandpa's wonderful. And what, what is, what, that's such a wonderful key to, and, and our, so our congregation is working on what you're describing, right? We, it's, a, it's a very welcoming church, but to be truly inclusive um, would, would take more. And interestingly, it's, of course, it's important to do the big symbolic things. We've got a big, we have a big mural um, that is, um, that is white. And um, anyway, so there's talk, you know, there's, there's that piece. But what I think is really intriguing is it's there's not a checklist of things to do. That's not the work. And I want to invite this congregation into the really deep work of can we be a place? Can we actually be a place in the same way that we do with LGBTQ plus people? Not just that has a thing on the sign and we have better stats, but that if you walk in as whoever you are for real, this is going to be a place that is interested in your journey and ready to be alongside you and be changed by that. But this is the work you do. So I'm really intrigued by I can I hear you that the institution might not want that that they want a checklist so that they can have more bodies but some of us really want to do that we want to invite people to be in relationship with Jesus in a community that sees them you know um, it- yeah, this is it's incredible, isn't it? Before you answer, Natalia Nana, I um uh today in our um daily prayer we've been considering the story of Joseph and it's the point in the story where he reveals to his brothers um whilst he's there in power as as a member of, of the um of the Egyptian court who he is. And and they're just spellbound and it leads to tears and and for me, there's this fascinating thing of the institutions that we're part of. We're part of this Egyptian court and we're also seeking to create space for community that's different and distinct. And I was just reflecting on I am Joseph. I, I hold this position within an institution. And so there's some power and resources and access and yet I'm part of this community that's been marginalised, that's been forgotten, that's from the backwater that, you know, and, and, and how do we reconcile that? And so I, I think this conversation is so key because 
um, we inhabit both worlds and your story of integration within yourself very powerfully. You know, you really are um, the queen of the village. You really do. You have inherited that title. It's just that your village is a little larger than um, your ancestors anticipated. <laughs> what a beautiful way of looking at it, because sometimes I think my village is a village of one. It's OK, I'm in a village within myself. And I can connect with others and that's beautiful. But actually in terms of belonging, what is it to belong within and to myself? Um, it really saddens me that actually doing this work, it has not in any way made me jaded. It has not in any way made me skeptical. I wish that were it. I wish I could dismiss it as that. It's, it's shown me truth. It's shown me reality. And that is far sadder because I, Winnie, I don't think churches want to do what you've said you want to do. I don't think humans want to do what you've said you want to do, that you want to actually actively lean in to create spaces where people can come as they are and embrace difference. That takes effort. And for a lot of people, and this is not in any way judgmental, it's just recognizing for a lot of people, Sunday is a space to go and be filled. It's a space to go into church and come out with hopefully a spring in your step or some soothing hand on your chest in what you've heard to embrace difference. Well, that's costly, that's sacrificial, that's uncomfortable. So, so you know, I, I mentioned this book study that we're doing with the Some of Us, and the, the way that, the, that John Vaughn opened the session yesterday is he said the, the work of race is spiritual. Like anti-racism work is a spiritual work. The work of racial whatever we're going to call justice, you know, in our country, whatever that word is, is spiritual work. Um, and so I, I would worry... And it's easy for those of us with mixed identity. So I'm, a, you know, as an immigrant to say there is no, for those of us for whom there is no obvious home place, right? Um, it's easy to say the, the discomfort is the work because it's the only place I get to live. But I actually think that's the spiritual work. Amen. I love that quote. And I think that's so true. And I think that is also then why I... I guess it's why I don't have faith on a, on a macro scale about change, about justice, about racial racial justice in church because it's like well then you're dealing with institutions you're dealing with people who don't want that discomfort actually that delving deep you know I have been incredibly beautifully gratefully blessed by the work of Christina Cleveland who's a sister who's helped me stay in faith and grow my faith and and engage more um with that black mysticism and seeing that as an example of reclaiming God as my mother and I also can call God Father. One doesn't take away from the other, seeing this real fragility that so much of church has, that thankfully my emancipation, my liberation is actually expanding my view of God. So I definitely see race work as spiritual, as mental, as social, as economic. And that's really hard. And I think that's why most of it isn't happening. Azariah, you know, if, you, if you're in the Joseph story, we're not. You know, the, the, the terrifying part of that story, right, is that the way he thinks he's leading his people, his family to some protection and maybe even to some freedom uh, leads to their slavery, right? That's the, the brutal end of, that's where that story lands, right? Um, and so I, I find the conversation we're having, frankly, so hopeful in that it's telling a truth. And I find truth telling extremely hopeful. Um, but I wonder how you're experiencing it. And, um, yeah, and your context is very different than mine. So, so one of the things that um, Natalia and Nana has offered to me over the time that I've known her is a sense of solidarity and 
and and someone who's outside of my immediate context that can um give me a, a fresh perspective because it's so easy for the gaslighting process to happen that you begin to think that you're at fault there's something dysfunctional about you and you begin to diminish lose your performance lose your fluency and uh, whereas there's something contextually or systemically which is is drawing and sucking the life out of you the joseph story i found fascinating there is um i forget the name of the theologian now but there's a wonderful jewish scholar who who studies that story and and speaks about how um joseph made himself a stranger to his brothers to begin with but the inference is that actually he made himself a stranger to himself first and the way in which he was able to survive in the institution was to um was was to lose something of his identity and so he was lost within it um and so in encountering his brothers there is this part of him that's been suppressed that's been buried which has been reactivated i i'm i've written my second book and it's in process and one of the things um uh, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm using another an, another term to do with the kind of maritime. So this next book is called Flagship. And one of the lines, when I was speaking to a friend, he said, it's almost like you've woken up um, as a pirate on a naval warship, you know, and you, <laughs> and you realise that, that you, you're different to, to the person that went to sleep. And it's like, gosh, you know, th- there's a sense of awakening and and so one of the things that I would love to have further conversations with you, Natalia Nana, about is how do you look after yourself? How do you find that sense of solidarity that you've provided when you provided for me with my book launch? Having you alongside me in that was just so satisfying, so stabilising. That sense of solidarity was so necessary to me. And and I'm just, you know, beginning to wonder how we do create that village. I remember Natalia and I was talking to you about a particular job that I thought I said, you know, are you interested in this? And you said, this isn't a job for one person. This is a job for two or three people. This is a job that isn't a national job. This is a job where there should be international and global links. And you just had a lovely natural instinct for what was going to help um, the role to thrive and for the person to flourish within that role. So I'm just curious if there's a few things that you can share for black and brown people who find themselves in white institutions that do not understand them, uh, that refuse to understand them, where their value, their voice and their visibility is just not there. Mm. What steps can they take to find a sense of peace and to not be shattered into pieces? Mm. This is so rich, just listening to you both. And before I respond to that question, it is incumbent upon me to to respond to the story of Joseph and really just really respond to that sense of like, oh, he he betrayed himself or he let himself go. Because, you know, looking at Joseph as an LGBTQIA story, you know, the robe actual word for it is a dress it's a particular it's a bride gown it's it's a it's a wedding dress essentially that he was wearing so he was wearing gender non-conforming clothes and for all intents and purposes it seems that he was rejected and cast out of his family because he was queer in in presenting and clearly his dad was a queer supporting his dad was fine with it and his brothers were the ones who who were transphobic queerphobic homophobic and rejected him so i wonder if there's a sense of actually could he actually be free freer in Egypt, away from the pressure of family, 
And then he actually was reconciled. So I wonder if there's something in there about belonging. Sometimes we need to actually, you know, have some time away from those communities and families and institutions which form us and influence us for us to be able to, to be like, oh, will the real Azariah please stand up? And when I do, I do workshops on like self-knowledge in particular. And I love the image of the Matryoshka dolls. They are the Russian dolls. And that sense of, well, they're all me. You know, the me in Ghana, when I put on my, um, I put on my tree, I put on my African lilts and I speak very differently. The me when I'm speaking, you know, receive pronunciation and the me when I'm chatting street, they're all me. And I've had this real journey of, of being like, oh, but you're fake. Which one is the real you? Which one's the real you? And now it's, uh, as Walt Whitman says, I'm multitudes. You're all of those Matryoshka dolls, but what my journey is about is trying to get to that solid one in the middle, the one that doesn't flex and flow, the one that doesn't have anything else, but they fit into all of the others. But in terms of encouraging others, there's definitely a sense of what Azariah is saying about is looking at both the internal and the external. And I really think that for me, part of my reconciling and my being able to breathe deeply and call myself Natalia Nana with freedom. I used to be embarrassed of the Nana, of will my CV go in the bin? Will I, does it look too black? And da 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 da, all these internalized racist self-awareness things, self-conscious things, the re, you know, what, how I'm able to reconcile it and breathe easy now is in balancing the external and internal. Of okay, I work in a very white, very middle-class national heritage organisation where I'm the only person of colour in the office in central London. And therefore, I've had to prioritise self-care. I've said actually to my manager, okay, this is, this is an issue. You don't see this as a white woman. That doesn't feel like a really safe space for me. It's tiring, it's hard. So one thing for me, and I know it's privilege is in choosing very carefully with whom I work, choosing where I put myself, that is my privilege, I'm able to do that. And where I haven't been, then in my last place of work where I didn't work with someone who, who really got it and who I found safe, I was intentional in forming an ally network for myself. I worked with majority white people, white Christians in that space, and when I took on the EDI role, I said, hey, this is gonna be a lot. It's in a, a week one, stuff's coming up for me will you guys be my support network? Will you be someone I can just say, hey, ping, you got five minutes to go to the prayer room and let me just cuss and cry and swear and pray and vent and release with you. So definitely identifying your people. And for me, that's both white and black and brown people, but being intentional about that has been key as has trying to find internal practices of last night, I was there with my smudge stick, which is a, a burning sage and my incense and a bowl of water and representing life and my ancestors and a picture of my grandma and my family there and just breathing in, breathing Wonderful. in and self-connecting. So for me, it's the external, the community, seeing the organization, the community and the internal practices that are grounding me and giving me life and safety. Natalia Nana, that is so beautiful. Thank you. Um, we're going to have you on again. So make sure you clear your schedule. Um, I remembered the theologian I was referring to is Aviva Zornberg. And the book is called The Beginning of Desire. And it's a 
gorgeous study on Genesis and it looks at some of the Joseph story and all what you've just shared. It's just a whole other beautiful and wonderful avenue. So thank you for bringing that to us as well. Um, Winnie, have you any last thoughts, reflections yourself? Otherwise, we'll be, um, you know, we're going to be having some more conversations with Natalie now. And it's just been so beautiful to have you with us today. Thank you. Yeah, inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Bush was talking to Azariah Franz Williams and Winnie Varghese. Randolph Matthews composed the music. Grace was produced by me, Rosie Dawson, and is a HeartEdge production. You can find more episodes by going to www.heartedge.org or from wherever you get your podcasts. Do subscribe, review, and share Grace with your friends. I got some singing and digging, then don't.